0: Hello again fight fans and welcome to episode number 102 of The Neutral Corner for Boxing Monthly Magazine. I am Michael Montero. A couple of housekeeping notes before we get on to the episode. Uh, First of all, this is going to be a two-part episode. We got a lot of ground to cover so we're going to break this up into two pieces for this episode. Also, it's a two-week preview. I'm going to be out of town next week so... I'm gonna do two weeks worth of previews in this episode. Not to worry, uh, I'll, pro- I'll be doing some rant videos and stuff like that along the way, but I have some vacation time coming up, so two week episode. One last quick note here, I wanna say thank you very much to Paula Vega, who just joined the team on Patreon. Guys, go to patreon.com slash Montero on Thank you very much to Paul Vega. Also, uh, Rex Afraziabi, he, he joined the Patreon team about a week or so ago. So two new Patreons. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. All right, guys, let's get into some news and notes. All right, as I mentioned, this will be a two week preview. Just to, uh, to detail, we'll be, we will be back here at TNC on Monday, November 27th. So mark that on your calendars. But uh, I did a, a, a poll over the weekend and you guys know I love my polls, right? So I'm gonna put this up on the screen here. And I asked you guys, all things considered, weight, size, location, timing, political advantages, which elite level fighter took on the best opposition in 2017? Who am I forgetting? Now over almost 400 of you have voted so far, and 75% went with Triple G, who fought Daniel Jacobs and Canelo Alvarez on my scorecard. He won both of those fights, but they were very, very close and competitive. But the question I asked, which fighter took on the best opposition, not necessarily who won percent of you thought it was anthony joshua really in that fight with vladimir klitschko i mean that's an all-time great heavyweight you took on there and then carlos tecum who is a top 10 heavyweight in my opinion is at the bottom end of the top 10 right now vasil Lomachenko, he's got three fights yeah the first two opponents not the best but guillermo rigado a pound for pound level fighter coming up here and his third fight of the year and then of course Rungvisai, uh, twice fighting chocolate tito and the first time I thought Chocolatito won that fight, I was there in March at MSG. I do think Chocolatito won, but a lot of people out there that I, I trust their opinion, I you know admire their boxing opinion, they thought Rungvisai won that fight. And then, of course, he left no doubt in the rematch at the Superfly card. So who am I forgetting? I know a few of you guys have mentioned Terrence Crawford, right? But Terrence Crawford, his opposition to me wasn't anywhere near these other fighters. Even guys like Loma and AJ. I thought that Crawford's, uh, or I should say Lomachenko, I think AJ's competition was pretty good. But Lomachenko, you know, first two fights of the year, not the best opposition. But Crawford, we could say the same thing. Crawford's accomplishment this year, though, completely unifying that division before moving up to welterweight completely unifying the junior welterweight titles and the dominance with which he did that that accomplishment might trump all these fighters although i'm still leaning towards anthony joshua with that win over Vladimir Klitschko, although I could play devil's advocate. Vladimir Klitschko, years past his best, years past his absolute prime, and was coming off a long, long layoff. So, And AJ was dropped in that fight and was losing the fight on my scorecard and the only competent judge, Steve Eisfeld, who was scoring that fight before he won by knockout and got, in my opinion, a slightly premature stoppage win. So, look, you guys, you could go back and forth with all this stuff. All things considered, best opponents this year, I think, hands down, Gennady, Gennayevich, Golovkin. Daniel Jacobs, Saul Canelo Alvarez, those are the number two, number three best middleweights in the world. I think if Daniel Jacobs moved up to super middleweight right now, he'd be a top five super middleweight. Might be the best super middleweight in the world if he went up in weight right now. So all things considered, I think Golovkin took on the best opposition but one of those fights was very, very close. He narrowly escapes with his decision win, and the other fight was technically a draw. So again, we could go back and forth with this. The debate will continue, but I just thought this was a fun question to put out there. All right, not that that's really news and notes worthy, but you know what I'm saying. I, I love my polls. You guys know who I am with my Twitter polls. Okay, news and notes. Alexander Povetkin reinstated by the WBC Remember, he was suspended with not one, but two failed drug tests, two different banned substances for two different fights going back to last year. They put him on a, a specific testing protocol with Vada at Povetkin's expense, not at the sanctioning organization's expense. And you know they kicked him off the ratings for a while, and now they got Povetkin back in the ratings. He's been clean enough, long enough, I guess, in the eyes of the WBC, and I think they want that Rabinsky cash. But um, look... A lot of people, this upset a lot of people. My opinion on this is kind of, does it really matter? I don't think Povetkin's going after the WBC title right now. He's about to be the mandatory for the WBO heavyweight title and get a crack at Joseph Parker. Unless Parker tries to unify with AJ next year, which might happen. If he tries to unify with AJ first, okay, Povetkin won't get a shot. But he'll end up going for an interim title, a vacant title, something. Something. So I think Povekin's going to go for the WBO title before he does anything with the BC. So like to me, this really wasn't that big of news. But it's absolutely worth mentioning because of the controversy and the history Povekin has had with the BC. All right, Jesse Vargas apparently, I don't know if there's been a press release put out yet or not, but apparently he's going to sign with Al Heyman. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, Vargas, formerly a top-ranked guy. And, you know, I think he said in interviews that this lines him up for shots with Keith Thurman, Sean Porter, Danny Garcia. Honestly, though, Jesse, this was a horrible decision. Unless you want to end up being another Adrian Granados, maybe not even that well. You might end up being another Robert Guerrero by the time it's all said and done. If you look at the track record, guys like you that end up signing in this arena with Mr. Heyman, tend to come out a certain way. So, good luck to you. Make some cash. I don't know about this move. And honestly, how often is Vargas going to fight now? Once or twice a year, and he's going to be the B-side. He was always going to be the B-side against the elite-level welterweights, but I thought top rank did a very good job for him. He had a crack at Bradley. He had a crack at Pacquiao. Those were the two best welterweights at the time. You know, Because Mayweather was kind of semi-retired and kind of a junior middleweight. All things considered, I thought they did a really, really good job for him. I don't don't know what the hell he's trying to do right now with his career. Okay, Dana White apparently said he's getting into boxing. And he's kind of talked about it in the past, but he's going on record now saying, no, we're definitely getting into boxing promotion. This is going around on Twitter. I played around and trolled around with some of you guys as we joked about this, that uh, White is, is in for a rude awakening. Uh, just about how hard it is in boxing in the United States right now, but more than that, it's so much more regulated than MMA. MMA is kind of like the Wild Wild West. Almost anything goes, comparative to boxing. And as much crap as boxing gets, right now with VADA, boxing is the best drug testing in sports, not just martial arts, but sports. The drug testing in boxing smokes Major League Baseball, the National Football League, the NBA. Their testing is a joke. So boxing has the best drug testing, and it's also the the Ali Act, and there's all these other extra regulations put on that MMA doesn't really have to deal with right now. So good luck to Dana White, but yeah, at first... I was kind of negative and I understand there's a lot of people in the boxing world right now, a lot of boxing fans and media, saying that White's gonna crash and burn and that um, him doing this is kind of showing his cards related to UFC and how that product is failing. Because the two biggest stars in the history of UFC have crashed and burned over the last 12 to 24 months and it started with them facing former boxers. So, well, actually, McGregor lost before he fought Mayweather, but he, he wasn't as thoroughly dominated by a guy who was faking it as he was against Mayweather. I don't know if that's the reason why White's doing this. That might be partially why. He might see some crossover prospects here. But I do know that Dana White, according to him, grew up as a boxing fan, does know a thing or two about it. But I'm going to try to remain positive about this and say let's give the guy a shot. But I understand everybody in the boxing business who's kind of going, oh, here we go again. 50 Cent and all these rappers who try to get into it, right? Um, Rock Nation, and we saw what happened there. Even the PBC and the collapse of that and what's going on with them and how detrimental that's been for American boxing. For the most part, there has been some bright spots for the PBC. And now this, you know, can Dana White really make a difference? I don't know. Comparing Dana White's name brand and platform, though, in the United States, compared to, let's say, an Eddie Hearn, who's a blockbuster promoter over in the UK, but not really known by a lot of fans, casual sports fans here in America, you'd say Hearn versus White? White might have a better shot at first trying to get things done here in the USA. We all know Hearn just opened up Matchroom Sports uh, America, USA, and just had his first card over here, which I'll talk about later in this episode. Maybe White has that initial boost, but long-term, man, I I just don't know if he's got the boxing know-how and profile and connections in the boxing business to get things done. But let's see, man. Let's remain positive, give the guy a chance. All right, what else? Mikey Garcia. Turns down a fight with Jorge Linares. This was a 50-50 offer from Eric Gomez at Golden Boy Promotions with absolutely no options. No multi-fight deal, none of this, no points. 50-50 right down the middle for Jorge Linares. And Garcia turns it down, will likely face Robert Easter Jr. in a, what is a, it is actually a title unification early next year. Possibly is still open to fighting Linares later in the summer next year. So, this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and I understand why. I'll get into that in a second. But here's the way I look at it for Mikey Garcia. You turn down this 50-50 fight, and I get it. He's he's more valuable than Jorge Linares. It's probably a 60-40 fight. There's two ways to look at it as far as the value of the fighters. Garcia puts more butts in seats. It's not like he's a big blockbuster superstar, but he puts more butts in seats, at least in the USA, than Linares. And that fight, if it happens, there's no way Garcia's traveling overseas for that fight. He's gonna demand it be either in LA or in Vegas, and it'll likely wind up in Vegas because of the money that they're gonna want. So, okay, Garcia's a bigger brand there. I get it, in terms of box office. But in terms of who's more accomplished, as a lightweight, in just the last five, six, seven years, who's taken on the better fighters? Maybe lost a few, but who's taken on the better fighters, especially at 130 pounds up, really 135 pounds and up, and that's Jorge Linares. He's stamped his passport, he's gone to Japan, he's fought in the UK, he's fought everywhere. And 135 pounds, he does have the ring magazine title. Some people say that that lineage doesn't really count. It's not a true lineage. I don't know. He does hold a title. He has more title defenses at lightweight than Garcia. And he's just fought more often, better opposition. So do you value the guy who's done more, especially done more recently against better opposition at the current weight they're fighting at? Or do you value the guy who's a bigger box office draw? Or do you meet somewhere in the middle? For me, I try to meet somewhere in the middle there. And that's why I say, you know, people talking that that's a 70-30 fight, that's ridiculous. It's a 55-45, 60-40 split kind of fight when it does happen. So for Garcia, if he goes on here and fights Robert Easter Jr. and wins that fight, collects another belt, Comes back to the negotiating table with Linares and Golden Boy and says, "Look, I got another belt here. I'm coming off another win. We did X amount of numbers as far as viewership and butts and seats, blah blah blah." And they have all that trending analysis, that paperwork that they can show Golden Boy the numbers. Then they can demand 60-40, and rightfully so. I mean, they really probably could now, but at that point, they really could. And that fight is further built up. So I really don't mind this. I don't mind it right now. Let's build up the fight with Jorge Linares to the middle of next year. Let's see some title unification in the meantime. Garcia hasn't done crap at lightweight. I don't rate this that he couldn't win that well. If he fights Robert Easter and beats him and dominates him, then he's a bona fide elite level lightweight And he's probably going to pop up near my pound-for-pound list around that time. Right now, he simply hasn't done anything at the weight. He had, I think, one fight against Latikadin, and then went to Adrian Broner for some money. And then he tried to get Miguel Cotto in the ring for some money and all that stuff. Which brings me to this, to my point that I wanted to make about why people are a little pissed off at Garcia right now. Mikey Garcia... You know, Top Rank did a good job for him. He kind of went the Andre Ward route where he's like, I'm out of this contract. I don't want to mess with Top Rank no more. I want to do my own thing. Okay, fine. He sat in his butt for a long time, really during a key part of his prime. He's since come back against hand-selected, cherry-picked opposition where the guy was either tailor-made for him and he could grab a quick belt or it was a quote-unquote name that was tailor-made for him that he could look good against in a higher-profile fight. That's what Garcia's done. It's really been smoke and mirrors. He hasn't done anything at lightweight, I think, to rate him as an elite level lightweight on anything more than what he did in the past and the eye test, what we know Garcia can do. In terms of accomplishment, you can't rate him that high as a lightweight. He's been calling out guys like Jorge Linares, Miguel Cotto, even Vasiliy Lomachenko, knowing that these guys are with promoters one of them, the former promoter, is screwed over. He knows that he's going to have to make a deal to get those fights. It's not going to be as simple as, hey, guys, well, (laughs) I'm Mikey Garcia. Let's make a fight. No. You're dealing with a promoter, and in terms of Cotto, you weren't just the B-side, Garcia. You were the C-side against Miguel Cotto. Against Lomachenko, you're the B-side. And against Jorge Linares, yeah, you're the A-side there, but it's A, A minus, A, B plus. I mean, you're not, it's not that different because of all the reasons I said before. So all things considered, I can see why people are a little annoyed with Mikey. He's turning into a bit of a diva and his return so far, in my opinion, has been a lot of smoke and mirrors. Now maybe he's just getting back in the mix, making some money, trying to negotiate his way. and Maybe calling out these fighters was his way to wiggle himself into higher paydays for easier opposition for him to further build his profile. I get that from a business perspective. Totally get it, ain't mad at you if that's where you're going, if that's where your goal is. But 2018, I hope that Garcia and his team start to back up some of the talk. It's time to fight Robert Easter and Jorge Linares in 2018. And then if you can get a third fight in before the end of the year, that would be great. But if he just fights twice next year and those are his two opponents, that's the best year of Mikey Garcia's career in terms of opposition. Look back at who Garcia's fought. He hasn't fought that many great fighters. Seriously. He's a damn good fighter. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of that resume is smoke and mirrors, guys. And yes, you can say the same thing for Jorge Linares and other guys that that Garcia has called out and wants to fight. Fine. But again, the difference... Specific to Linares, he's traveled, he's taken on the tough fights, he's lost some, he's won most, but he's been willing to take those challenges. And without making half the demands Garcia has, let's see Mikey Garcia step it up in 2018. For now, I like to fight with Robert Easter. I think that's a good matchup and a fun fight. And the winner of that fight is the best lightweight, maybe the second best lightweight in the world, not just based off eye test, but what they accomplished at the weight. All right. Marcus Brown pulls out of a WBC light heavyweight title eliminator against Alexander Gavajdik. The Nail is scheduled to fight in February. Top Rank has that TV day with ESPN, but now it's TBA. And they don't know. Igas Klimas, uh, man, his manager, has said that he doesn't know who they're going to fight. He also doesn't know where it's going to be at. And he doesn't know if it's still going to be an eliminator fight. Now, I'm not at all surprised that Marcus Brown pulled out of this fight. I think that he was in for an ass whooping. It was the opportunity of a lifetime for him, but I'm still not surprised. Obviously, the WBC light heavyweight champion is Adana Stevenson, who somehow the WBC, who went after Canelo Alvarez like he stole something, has let Adana Stevenson get away with murder. Adana Stevenson is the Harvey Weinstein of boxing, if you want to be political about it. Stevenson was supposed to fight Eladir Alvarez, his mandatory for the past 4,000 years. I think the Egyptians carved some hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics, I can't say that word, some hieroglyphics and the pyramids about that damn mandatory fight. That's how far back it goes. But now they're saying, um, Stevenson might pay some step-aside cash to Alvarez to fight Badu Jack instead. So if we end up getting a fight between Stevenson and Badu Jack, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for me, but might be a way for Floyd Mayweather to get his man a title belt and for Stevenson to get paid, what are we going to get in the meantime? Does Eladir Alvarez fight Marcus Brown? Does he fight Alexander Gavazdik? How does that work? What is the WBC going to do about this? They have perverted that title at light heavyweight. It is so meaningless right now. And you, look, Gavazdik hasn't done anything wrong. You're going to have him in an eliminator fight, which doesn't make any sense anyway because Alvarez has been The mandatory for 4,000 years, as I mentioned before. And he hasn't got his championship opportunity yet. WBC needs to clean this up. I got beat up on the WBA a lot, and they deserve it. But man, the WBC, not much worse when you really, really think about it. All right, guys. So that's all I got for news and notes and rants about what's going on right now. Let's get into the review of what took place last year. A lot of action all over the world to talk about. Last Saturday, November eleventh, in Edinburgh, Scotland, Josh Taylor scores a win over Miguel Vasquez. The first defense of his WBC junior welterweight silver title. The full world title right now is vacant after Terence Crawford moved up to welterweight. Taylor is now eleven and zero with ten knockouts. He's a prospect, but he's a prospect to keep an eye on. Five foot ten, southpaw, twenty six years old, twenty twelve Olympian. Um, very accomplished amateur fought in the commonwealth games the world championships the european championships this guy has real craft and whatever you want to say about miguel vasquez uh, not the greatest fighter on earth but a very good experienced quality professional prize fighter knows how to survive in there and he had never been stopped taylor becomes the first guy to stop him vasquez lost to a split decision to Canelo Alvarez in his pro debut in 2006. I want to say that was like a welterweight fight. And he lost a unanimous decision to Timothy Bradley in 2007, another unanimous decision loss to Canelo in 2008, and a couple of close decision losses to lesser opposition the last couple years. But as I mentioned before, he's never been thoroughly, completely dominated, and or stopped. And here it is. Uh, Taylor made him look old and got the stoppage win. So let's not crown Taylor as you know the, the second coming or an elite level guy just yet. But this was a major, major statement. And he is certainly a player in that junior welterweight division, which is now blown wide open since Terrence Crawford left. So can't wait to see what this kid does in 2018, man. Now, over in Newcastle and Tyne and Ware, Liam Beefy Smith would wins a majority decision over Liam Williams. This was the rematch of the Liams. This was also a WBO Junior Middleweight title eliminator. Miguel Codo is currently the WBO Junior Middleweight champ, but we don't know what he's gonna do. We know he's got a fight with Ali coming up, but what happens if he wins that fight? He's promised he's going to retire. Does he keep that promise? Or does he he actually retire? And does that belt become vacant? Or does he stick around and maybe we see a fight between Smith and Cotto next year? Knowing Miguel Cotto, I don't believe he's going to stay retired, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Interesting note, That WBO junior middleweight title, I've talked about this before, but that was Canelo's belt. And coincidentally, he won that belt by beating Smith. And the guy he had beat before Smith was Cotto, even though that was technically a middleweight fight. So this WBO junior middleweight championship belt has kind of gone this strange love triangle recently. And here it is. You're probably going to end up seeing, quite quite possibly end up seeing, Liam Smith fighting for that title again against Cotto, another guy Canelo beat early next year. But maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe Cotto will retire. And if he does, maybe Smith will just be bumped up to champ and he'll be the WBO junior middleweight champ again, even though he was thoroughly dominated by Canelo Alvarez to lose that belt in, I think, Arlington, Texas. Yeah, just outside of Dallas a year or so ago. So just kind of funny the way everything comes back around in the world of boxing. Anyway, the scores for this fight were 117, 111, 116, 112, and one judge had it 114, 114. So two of those scores were way too wide. This was a close competitive fight. Most people feel that Smith won, but there are a lot of people out there, a significant minority of observers that thought Williams did enough to win this fight. So that third 114-114 score, that was in the right ballpark. I don't think you could really give either fighter more than seven rounds. You'd be hard-pressed to give either guy eight rounds. But that 117-111 score was atrocious. Absolutely disgusting score. The first fight back in April ended in a retirement win for Smith. Williams was ahead at the time of the stoppage, 86-85. And then there was a headbutt cut And um, because of that cut, it ended up being a retirement win for Smith. But if you look at how many rounds is this now these guys have shared, Uh, 9 plus 12, what is that? 21. Very, very close, man. These guys have basically fought 21 rounds together, and one guy won 11 of them, the other guy won 10. That's pretty much how these two match up together. I wouldn't mind seeing it again, but I don't think we're going to see it again anytime soon. But quite possibly could see it again two years down the road, wouldn't, that wouldn't be the craziest thing we've seen, right? But I think right now for Smith, he's lined up. This was a title eliminator. He's gonna get that crack at either Kodo, because I do think Cotto's gonna beat Ali if Kodo sticks around, or he's gonna get a crack at that vacant title early next year. So that's where he's going next. Uh, Smith is now 26, one and one with 14 knockouts. Only been stopped once, and that was against Canelo. So um, let's see what he could do with this newfound opportunity. Now let's come over here to this side of the pond, and we'll start in Fresno, California, where there was an ESPN card Saturday night. And in the main event, Jose Carlos Ramirez scores a second-round knockout over Mike Reed, who he put down. It looked like there was a second knockdown, but it was more of a push. And uh, referee Jack Reese correctly called it a push. But at that point, you could see Reed's legs were weak. And Ramirez, who just teed off on him from the opening bell, and got him up against the ropes a couple times and was going to the body, going upstairs. A lot of aggression, a lot of energy and aggression feeding off that hometown crowd. I've heard there was as much as 15,000 fans there. I don't know if that's the real number or not, but I know it was well over 10,000. And for this kid who's really just a prospect to be doing those kind of numbers, that is very, very impressive. So a lot of people didn't like the stoppage, thought it was too soon. Uh, For my money, it was a little too soon, but Reed was doing absolutely nothing but covering up. And again, judge a fighter by their body language, what they're doing in there. You could tell when a fighter's covering up in a craftful, tactical way, waiting for a counter punch. And you could tell when they're covering up, it's kind of in panic mode. And considering that there was a knockdown, that pushdown that I just talked about where you could tell Reed's legs were weak and Ramirez was able to push him down fairly easily, he was offering absolutely no resistance back. There was absolutely no return fire. He wasn't moving and sliding on the ropes. He just put his hands up and ate punches. I don't mind the stoppage here. This wasn't remotely competitive. At all. Uh, Reed landed 12 punches to JCR's 64. JCR is Jose Carlos Ramirez. That's my nickname for him for now on because it's a lot easier to say JCR than Jose Carlos Ramirez. So look, JCR is a legitimate brand in American boxing. He's not known really outside of Central California. But in Central California, he's very well-known. He's their biggest sports star. That's a small market, but the fans have turned out for him multiple times. He's done crowds like this. There are very few fighters like this in the United States. The way Ramirez has risen up in his local community so quickly and and, and done crowds like this really reminds me the way a lot of UK fans or UK fighters get support from the fans over there. It just seems that he's getting support from his, not just his hometown, but that whole area, that whole general area, because it's not necessarily a big market. So there are people driving from 10, 20, 30 miles away from small farming communities around Fresno there to see this kid fight. And to me, it just reminds me of what I see a lot with some of the UK fighters, where you'll see guys from different parts of the countryside and stuff, that you get these regional rivalries The fans come out in droves to support some of these guys. That's the type of support I'm seeing for JCR. Um, And again, this is a rare case in the United States. I mean, we know Terrence Crawford does massive crowds in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, outside of Omaha, Crawford's not a huge star. But in Omaha, Nebraska, same thing. People are driving from 20, 30 miles away from these farming communities to come see him. Now, uh, Robert Easter Jr. I've talked about, he's done some good crowds in Toledo, Ohio. Again, not the biggest market in the world. Deontay Wilder has done some good crowds in Birmingham, Alabama. Not the biggest market in the world. What's the lesson here? The lesson here is that you should build these fighters up in their hometown markets from the minute they go pro. And if you do that and you do it the right way and you match these guys up the right way and keep them busy... You start to build a brand. And look, I just gave you an example of a couple PBC guys. They're nowhere near the brand that a Terrence Crawford is yet, or even JCR is probably more of a brand than Deontay Wilder, quite honestly. But all things considered, man, there's proof out there of how this thing works if you do it the right way. And let's give Top Rank some credit. Crawford did it the right way with him in Omaha. JCR doing it the right way with him in, um, in uh, Fresno area. So this was a top rank on ESPN car, this was a top rank show. I just think that they figured out long ago that in the new era of American boxing, take it away from the casinos at first, build these guys up in these smaller markets, it works. And even Al Heyman, to his credit, has started doing that with some of his guys in the PBC. I don't like the Barclays cards. They don't make sense to me. But when he has put some of his fighters in their hometown, the fans have responded. So Uncle Al's figuring that out too. We need to see more of this in American boxing with the American promoters. It can be done. For JCR, he improves to 21-0 with 16 knockouts. He's been a pro for about five years now. He's been built up the right way. And now he will fight Amir Imam, who won on the undercard of this Uh, this event in an eliminator fight next. The winner of that fights the winner between Victor Polstal and Regis Progre, and the winner of that full WBC welterweight, I'm sorry, junior welterweight title. So for JCR, been built up the right way for these five years, and now in 2018, he's gonna get two massive opportunities. And if he can pass those two tests by this time next year, he will be an even bigger brand in his hometown and an even bigger brand in American boxing coast to coast because he'll have a title and he'll have been in headliners on ESPN a couple of times. So good for him. Also on this card, Arthur Beterbiev scores a 12th round knockout over Enrico Coling, takes the vacant IBF light heavyweight title. The scores were 110 to 99, three times at the time of the stoppage. Uh, he dropped Colin twice in the twelfth round. A lot of people were uh, not impressed with this performance by Betterbieev or Baturbiev, whichever pronunciation you prefer. And I still haven't heard a correction as to what is the correct one. I wish Beterbieev's handlers or just him himself would would clear that up because I hear it pronounced both ways. But you know, this is a guy who's been so inactive. He's had issues with the promoter up there in Canada, Yvonne Michelle he's had injuries, he got rounds in. And I just, I don't understand the criticism because he was in there with a the guy who was really trying to survive for the most part. He got 12 good solid rounds of work in, he won and dominated all 12 rounds, and then he went out there in the final round and got the damn stoppage. What are you criticizing? This is basically an A-plus performance by Baderbiev. If you're his team, If you are in his camp, what more could you want? A KO-1 does nothing to shake off ring rust. Here you get 12 rounds of work in. You dominate a dude who knows how to box. Kohling had a pretty good amateur background. He's a schooled fighter. He's not elite or A-level, but a good, solid, professional prize fighter. And better be of one every second of this fight, and then goes in there and gets the stoppage which tells you he wasn't just phoning this in to get a win. He went out there and got the job done. I, I think this was a good performance. I'm not saying it's the most exciting fight I've ever seen. But Peturbiev is now 12-0 with 12 knockouts, needed the rounds, got him in, kept his knockout streak going. He's still batting 1,000 when it comes to knockouts. And he hadn't fought in almost a year. So all things considered, and he got a title. I just, this is about as good as you could script it. If you're on team, better be of. So, I talk a lot about prospects with titles, right? On the surface, that's what better be of looks like, but he's not. He's a legitimate, top, elite level light heavyweight. Considering his amateur background, um, and now that he's got a title here, he's 32 years old, he's grown, he's mature, he's a top, legit light heavyweight. I rate him above guys like Beevil right now. Bivol, I still see as a prospect. He's, and these guys have a similar amount of fights. But look in between the numbers, guys. Look at the gray in between the black and the white, and you will see that uh, Beterbiev, or Beterbiev is ready for guys like Sergey Kovalev. Should Kovalev win November 25th against Shebronski or anybody else, Sullivan Barrera, The Nail, Gavajdik, Adonis Stevenson, he's ready for all those guys. Bivol, not quite yet. Also on this card, Alex Sacedo, undefeated junior welterweight prospect, and Amir Imam, who I talked about before, and Alexander Putin, an undefeated welterweight prospect. They all scored knockout wins. So I want to talk real quickly about the ESPN broadcast. A lot has been talked about because Teddy Atlas was really, really in a bad mood and had a lot to say. Kind of inconsistent bias with his commentary, which has become more and more common for him. And he was going back and forth with uh, Mark Kriegel, who didn't necessarily do a great job himself, but I think was a last second replacement. At least that's the way it felt, just because their chemistry was so off. Um, I-, I wish Teddy Atlas would rein some of that in. Before I talk about that, though, these top rank on ESPN cards, they've mixed and matched and had different commentary teams, none of them have worked so far. Timothy Bradley didn't do very well. Stephen A. Smith in studio, I remember for that uh, Pacquiao-Horn fight was awful. Kriegel wasn't very good. They got to find somebody that works the right way with Teddy Atlas, or they gotta get rid of Teddy Atlas. All right, so far, if if the goal here is to build casual fans, you're not gonna do it with this kind of nastiness every single time with Teddy Atlas and whoever the third guy is. Now, when Timothy Bradley was in, him and Teddy get along great, but they were agreeing too much. And and, and Tim Bradley just doesn't belong on the mic. Wonderful human being, damn good fighter, not a good commentator. Just not built for that job. They gotta find somebody better. Teddy Atlas. I've met Teddy in person a couple times and I've talked with Teddy in private, cameras off, and he couldn't be any more different one-on-one in a private setting with the camera off than he is with the camera on. And I really think Teddy has kind of created a shtick for himself, a character, it's kind of a caricature of himself that he does for the camera, he does for the microphone that works for him. It's a hyped up, elevated character of who he really is. Character, I should say. And it's go, it goes back to the 90s when he was on HBO training Michael Moore in, in heavyweight title fights and going off in the corner and having these tirades and these spectacles. He sat down once on the stool and wouldn't let Moore sit down in the corner between a round. He would do all this stuff and it would get him notoriety. right? So... I think he still does that to this day. He plays it up when the cameras are on. And it works for him with casual fans. There are casual sports fans and MMA fans and stuff that know who Teddy Atlas is. Part of the reason they know who he is though is because of his negative rants about how boxing sucks I actually listened to the Ringside Reporter podcast earlier today, and they were talking about this. I think those guys, I've called into that show before, and I want to call in uh, again here. I've just had a crazy busy schedule, but I want to call in again, be back on that show because I like uh, what those guys do, and uh, they were talking about this, that Teddy is just one of these old school curmudgeons that just craps on boxing all the time, and Diehard fans, diehard dedicated boxing press, we know those types, and they're just like lovable, crazy uncles to us, right? We all know those types, and we deal with it all the time, and it's kind of fun. It's kind of an inside thing we have together. It's dysfunctional family. That's boxing. But casual fans, remember Teddy's ranting for hours after the Pacquiao horn fight? Those rants with Stephen A. Smith on SportsCenter on ESPN that night. This was hours after the fight. And it wasn't, I think it was a bad decision. I think Pacquiao won. But it was nowhere near the worst decision we've seen even this year. It wasn't a great decision, but it wasn't a total out-and-out robbery. And that stuff went viral. That's what people were talking about. That's what guys like Aaron Rodgers, the NFL, probably the best player in the NFL, one of the top five best players in the NFL, tweeted about that. This is why boxing sucks, right? So you start to get celebrities taking Teddy's rants and tirades and going with that and ranting about it, ranting on Teddy's rants. Not good for the sport. Now, guys like Max Kellerman can drive me nuts Mauro Ronaldo can drive me nuts, even Jim Lampley sometimes, but you don't hear them going on tirades like that We're literally one second, two plus two equals four for this fighter, but for this fighter, suddenly two plus two equals five. That's the problem with Teddy. He's so inconsistent, and I think that he just decides which dudes he likes, which dudes he doesn't like for whatever reason, And he sees everything through that filter. For whatever reason, he doesn't like Gennady Golovkin. He doesn't like him, right? Didn't have him on his pound-for-pound list. He had guys like Keith Thurman, I think Danny Garcia, guys like that rated on his pound-for-pound list. I think Errol Spence. And didn't even have Gennady up there. But you better believe, after that Golovkin-Canelo decision, after Adelaide Bird's scorecard, suddenly Teddy Atlas was ranting and raving about Kennedy Golovkin and this injustice and the scoring and the corruption and blah, 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 right? So suddenly he was white knighting for a triple G when he doesn't even like the guy and didn't have him on his pound for pound list. That's what I don't like about Teddy. And again, I've talked about this story on my channel before. I won't go into detail about it, but there was one time where I was in mixed company with Teddy and... I was talking to somebody about the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps and we did some, some combat training, and was some boxing and some stuff that, we called it line training, but it was kind of like MMA, basically. And we even fought with pugil sticks. So we did all kinds of martial arts stuff in the Mar- Marine Corps. And I was talking about that with somebody, somebody and Teddy overheard me. And Teddy Atlas came up to me and shook my hand and he said, sir, I just want to say thank you. And I was like, what? Teddy Atlas saying thank you to me. And I'm like, well, thank you for saying that. And he goes, no, 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 seriously. And he looks me in the eyes and he made it a point. He grabbed my hand. And he was just like, thank you for doing what you did. Not many people would do that. Very, very few people do what you did. So thank you. And he meant it. And I was so taken back by that because he just walked up to me and said that. So he's a really nice guy. He's really humble and nice. And he said this, he wasn't ranting, raving. He was quiet, very, very quiet and sincere. And you talk to him in person, that's how he is. But you turn on that camera, you turn on that microphone, you turn on the lights, he turns into a character. And somebody at maybe top rank or ESPN, ESPN loves the character, right? Those kind of characters, Half of the people on that network are trolls. Watch the ESPN shows. It's nothing but trolls. So they're, gonna, they're not gonna do anything about the character. Somebody at top rank who's paying for this series, in a, in, a, in a sense, ESPN, Disney is their partner, but they're putting up money too. They need to go and talk to Teddy and try to rein that character in a little bit because this kind of thing, this negativity, isn't gonna build fans. It'll get hits on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff, it's not going to build fans, man. So that's my rant about Teddy Atlas. Now, one more card here in the United States, Uniondale, New York. This was an HBO card that just kind of didn't live up to expectations. Not that this was expected to be fireworks, but these all of these fights just lived down. Well, you know what? Two of them did. One of them surpassed expectations. So let's start with that. Cletus Selden. A lot of you probably don't know who that is. And I'll be honest, I didn't really know much about him until Saturday night either. He scored a TKO three win over Roberto Ortiz. Uh, Ortiz was knocked down twice in the second round. This was an all-action fight. Really came out like JCR did here in California. Same kind of mentality. Just went out there and put it on this dude. Cut him up, stopped him, wins the fight. Seldon's now 21-0 with 17 knockouts, but he hadn't fought anybody before fighting Ortiz. Ortiz was the first opponent with a pulse that he had fought. And even Ortiz himself, who was a Mexican guy, had only left Mexico once before, and that was in 2014, when he was beat by Lucas Matisse, also by stoppage, although some people felt that that stoppage was somewhat controversial. But, this guy's a fresh face, and you could tell HBO, who spent a lot of time interviewing him, Max Kellerman did in a post-fight interview up in the ring, uh, they're looking for fresh faces, right? Because top rank has left and they've gone to ESPN. They've taken a whole stable of fighters with them. HBO needs new faces. And Seldine, to his credit, not only went out there and did this thing in the ring, but he did this thing in the post-fight interview. It was entertaining. It was fun. It made you like the guy and want to see him again. So we are going to see this guy again very soon on HBO. I'm sure he'll be back in the ring early 2018. He does lead with his forearm, right? And there was some talk about that because uh, Ortiz dove right into him and got hit in the nose. He had a cut in his eye, but that cut in the eye was from a punch. That was not from the forearm. But that forearm, you know, he kind of buries his forehead into his forearm and sticks it out there. If you run into it, fine. Against a crude type of fighter like Ortiz, that's going to work. But against a skilled fighter, one of the top rated fighters in that division, they're gonna go right under it with an uppercut. I don't know if you guys can see what I'm doing here, but if you got your, your forearm out like this, you could feint upstairs with a jab so he can brace for that jab, right? And he's gonna maybe wind up for a right hand. You feint with that jab and you come with an uppercut, boom, lights out. So um, let's not get too excited. Exciting guy, definitely want to see more of him. Wrecking ball, got some real legitimate power, but he's going to have to work on some craft against some of the finer technicians in that division. Still, I want to see more of him, and I know you guys do too. Moving up on the weight scale. Way, way up on the weight scale. uh, Jarrell Big Baby Miller scores a TKO 9 win over Mariusz Vak, and it really wasn't a stoppage type win. Vak injured his, I think it was his right hand, early in the fight was in a lot of pain clearly and could not continue. So look, this was a pretty bad fight. Just pretty crappy heavyweight fight. Miller won every round, basically. He'd be hard pressed to give Vok a round, but uh Vock is slower than a corpse. Seriously, there are corpses that probably punch faster than him. Joe Lewis could probably punch faster right now than Vok can. So Slow guy, broken hand, and you couldn't legitimately put a whooping on him and stop the guy. For Miller, this was his big chance, his big showcase on HBO. We just saw Wilder fight recently, Joshua fight recently, and even Parker has fought recently, three guys with titles. And Miller is kind of trying out for all of them, especially Anthony Joshua, because Eddie Hearn, Matchroom USA, promoted this card, right? And he was right there a few rows back uh, from the ring. And Miller, if this was an audition, like for a TV show, Miller wouldn't get the role. He sucked. It just wasn't a very, very good fight. And look, he got the W, I get it. He's gonna get a fight against Anthony Joshua probably next year. If David Hay beats Tony Bellew in their rematch, I've talked about this, I still think Joshua and them might go for Hay, but... Maybe not. Maybe a fight with Miller comes cheaper. Maybe they see it as a more winnable fight, a more credible fight. Maybe they'll take less trash or less heat from the media for going after Miller because he is an undefeated young prime heavyweight. They got options there. But I do think at some point Miller is going to get a crack at either Joshua or maybe even Wilder. Just because he's an undefeated American heavyweight from New York that means something to a lot of the old guard boxing press. Um, he, has, he has a mouth, he talks a lot of trash, he is a very good promoter. So yes, he's gonna get his crack. But guys, he weighs 280 something pounds. He doesn't hit very hard. Vok has a good chin, he does have a good chin. But you, you gotta at least dent the guy. You gotta at least dent him. You got to do more at this stage of Vox career. He's clearly nowhere, not that he was ever a great fighter, but his years passed the version of him that went pretty deep with Povekin and went the distance with Klitschko, even though he was on steroids. He's not even at that level of Mariusz Vox, right? If you're Miller and this is your big chance, you got to go out there and do something special. And he didn't. And I think a big part of it, well, there's two parts of it. One, he's just not that good. He's not as good of his, as his mouth says he is. But two, the weight, man. And, and, and I tweeted about this. And, 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 you know, some of you guys said I was fat shaming. And I, I had some jokes at Miller's expense and it's not the first time. But guys, I also posted a video this weekend of me working out on a Saturday morning. Veterans Day, my day, my holiday. I'm a veteran. And I spent my Veterans Day morning... Um, Beating, my, beating myself up in the boxing gym for two hours, training harder, obviously, than Miller has in camp for this fight. And I get it. Miller's taking the punches. I'm not. He's doing the sparring. He's doing the harder work. I get that in that respect. But the discipline or lack thereof, I'm just a writer. I'm just a boxing journalist. A lot of you guys out there who are diehard fight freaks, you work out. You're in great shape. A lot of you guys I know have done some amateur fights and stuff like that, and just some occasional sparring to stay in shape. How bad is it that we're paying money to keep ourselves in shape? This guy is getting paid as a professional athlete, and he can't get down to 260 pounds. Miller went pro in 2009. He weighed 252 pounds in his pro debut. He was 248 pounds for his second fight in 2011, didn't fight in 2010. He was down to 242 in his fourth pro bout in December of 2012. Check this out. He was up to 286 in his very next fight one month later, which resulted in a draw. So let me repeat this. He went from 242 pounds in his fourth pro fight in December of 2012, to 286 pounds in his fifth pro fight in January of 2013. In one freaking month, this guy gained 40 pounds. I'm not making this up. Look it up. He has been pretty much in the 280s, 290s, the last year or so. That's pretty much where he's been. He's a professional athlete. If he's really serious about this, he should probably be in the 260s. He's a grown man and he's just a big dude. I'm not even asking him to get back down in the 240s or even 250s. Dude, get down in the 260s. Show that you're serious. Throws a lot of punches, but they're pity pat. There's nothing on them. I think that he could take down the punch volume and put more mustard on the punches, put his legs and his ass into the punches make them count more if he'd lose some weight and gain some stamina. That's just my opinion on Jarrell Big Baby Miller. There's nothing to him, in my opinion, other than a mouth. He's gonna talk his way into a title shot and get knocked out. That's Jarrell Big Baby Miller. I'm more interested in guys like Gerald Washington and Dominic Brazil than Jarrell Miller. That's the truth. Now, in the main event, Daniel Jacobs scores a unanimous decision win over Luis Arias. The scores were 120 to 107, and that was probably the correct score, 119-108 and 118-109. I think those scores were a little too generous to Arias, who did nothing but survive. Jacobs is now 33 and two with 29 knockouts in this win. Again, going back to the Better BF fight, the the only difference between this fight. For Jacobs in the better be fight, it better be have got the stoppage at the end. Jacobs didn't go for it in the 12th and try to get the stoppage. But nonetheless, this win solidifies my position that Jacobs is the third or fourth best middleweight in the world right now. Absolutely, probably the third best, right behind Golovkin and Canelo. Arias, good, crafty fighter, knows how to survive. But has no power for the middleweight division, still punches like an amateur, doesn't sit down on the punches, doesn't even turn over on them, does too much of this slappy stuff with his hands sideways, right? Too much of that. He should go down to 154 pounds. Um, if he can, here's the thing though. You know, I looked into his amateur career. He fought at 165 pounds as an amateur, right around 165. So, you know, this goes back years. And as a pro, he's never fought below 158 pounds. He's fought in the 160s, low 160s as a pro. So could he even make 154 pounds? I don't know. Seems to me to be a guy who would rather be comfortable at 160. But if he made that sacrifice to drop down to 154, which is a wide open division, we've had some guys vacate titles and move up to 160. 160's loaded. Arias isn't even a top 10 middleweight. But if he could get down to junior middleweight right now, he would be a top 10 junior middleweight. Right now. Just moving down. Not as deep as a, of a division as middleweight is. In the amateurs, this guy beat Sean Porter. He beat Jesse Hart. He beat Tony Harrison. He's a good quality boxer. But he's got to fight in a more pro style. He's got to move down the weight. He's also got to get a new trainer. John David Jackson trains him right now. And you know, my opinion now, I try to give him a pass on the whole Kovalev thing, but just looking at this fight, and every fight John David Jackson's had recently, the dude's basically a fitness instructor. He's basically a guy you go to the gym and hit mitts with. He doesn't teach you anything. He doesn't uh, spar you the right way and get you working on weaknesses and fine tuning things. You hit mitts with him, and you get in shape. That's what John David Jackson is. Also, if he has any issues with you, he's not gonna talk about them until after your relationship is severed. He will put up with all kinds of crap, as you saw that he did with Sergey Kovalev, as long as the check's clear. So John David Jackson, if I was a promoter, or a manager, an advisor, in boxing right now, I would not put any of my prospects or contenders with John David Jackson. Bottom line.